Well, grab your Bibles and open up to Acts chapter 19. We've got to make some work. We got work to do last week. You can go to our podcast, our Facebook, uh, YouTube. You can check out last week's talk where we went through verse 20. And I want to pick up the, the storyline here in Acts chapter 19 um, very, very briefly. So, Lord, would you come upon us now as we stand or rather sit under your teaching, under your word? Lord, we are not masters of the text. We are servants of the Lord of the text. And so we come under, we come uh, humbly as those who need bread this morning as those who need the living water, the washing of the water through your word. And so would you just anoint both my lips and our hearts and our minds and our, and our, and our spirit to be able to receive and perceive what you're saying in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, I'm gonna go right into it. You can listen to the talk. The 22nd version is, Paul shows up to Ephesus. He pours his life into a few men they're so radically transformed as disciples of Jesus that through their faithfulness and their little tiny community, the word of the Lord spreads throughout the entire region. Right before this story, there were those who claimed to know Jesus by using his name, but they didn't know Jesus by way of relationship. And so they tried to cast out a demon in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, but it didn't go well for them. You can read that in verse 13 through 16. So I'm gonna pick up in verse 17 and just get straight into it. The title of today's talk um, is When the Way of Jesus Collides with Culture. When the Way of Jesus Collides with Culture. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks, verse 17, living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. I read in one commentary, that's 50,000 uh, uh, wages of, of daily workmen. So millions of dollars, tons of money. No one knows exactly how much, but just a lot of money. And in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And just by way of review, because I thought it was very significant that we understand what it means to live in the fear of the Lord. Next slide. Living in the fear of the Lord is a safeguard against apathy, which is a lack of interest, enthusiasm, or concern. Accommodation, where you begin to adapt or adjust to someone or something. Assimilation, which is the process of becoming similar to something. And then ultimately, it can lead to apostasy where you just abandon or deny the faith altogether. So when we live with the fear of the Lord, we see him for who he is. We see us for who we are. And we allow his grace and his truth and his wisdom to draw us in and to transform us through his love. And the fear of the Lord is such an, a significant and important truth for us to grasp because when the Lord restores the awe and wonder that's due his name, when we say, I said it like this last week, when we say a deeper yes to his ways, he will undoubtedly increase our capacity to both receive and release his presence and power to those around us. How many would say today, Chatty, I want God to increase my capacity to both receive his love and then release his love to those around me? If so, say amen. In the fear of the Lord, when we revere him for who he is, with awe and respect and, 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 and a yielded heart of love that you are holy, you are awesome, you are mighty, he begins to transform our lives through his love. Verse 21 of Acts 19 after all of this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Aristus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little bit longer. And here's the big phrase for our talk today. And after this time, say it with me, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Everyone say, dun, dun, dun. 
The word of the Lord has spread rapidly. Many people are coming into repentance. Those who practice sorcery, which was very common in Ephesus as it was a center of the occult. It was a center of, 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 of like we said last week, any vice you wanted, you could have. And when people started to encounter Jesus, they realized Jesus didn't just want to forgive them and pardon them. He wanted to totally transform their life. And so at that time, when they, when they're, not just when God dealt with their sin, but when God started dealing with their lifestyle, come on, am I talking to anyone? It caused a disturbance around them because their way of life was beginning to change from the way that everyone in their culture lived. And this is why throughout the, the book of Acts, the, the, a common moniker or common phrase that was used for believers was followers of the way. When you think of the way, what do you think of? Shout it out at me. The way of Jesus. It's a, the reason why I love using a biblical word like the way, it all, what does it imply? There's a way of life. It's not just head knowledge. It's heart transformation and life transformation. And I love this language that believers are called followers of the way because so many of us, if we're honest, we, we maybe have prayed a prayer, opened our heart to God's grace, but we've stopped there. How many believe that's just the doorway lobby entrance, but there's a whole life or way of living that Jesus Christ wants us to experience in his grace, amen? amen. I, I say it like this, our walk with Christ is meant to inform and infuse our public life. And this will inevitably lead to pushback from the principalities and powers. So the believer's lifestyle started to be transformed. All of these who, who came to Christ but yet had this old life of, of in, in Ephesus' case, they, uh, of witchcraft and the occult and, and spiritual interests, when they started realizing, oh my goodness, Jesus actually wants that part of my life too, it began to impact their culture. And I want to say this, our words will carry power and authority. Help me, buddy, wherever you are, Justin. These are slides. Um, our words will carry authority and power in public when we walk in the fear of the Lord, when we make a clean break from our for, former way of living, and when we know, read this last one with me, I like this phrase, when we know the pardon or the forgiveness and adopt the practices, formation of Christ as participants in the kingdom. This is super significant. Many of us, I love the pardon. I love that there's nothing you and I could do to get God to forgive us on our own merit. That's a free gift of God. Hallelujah, we all shouted amen. But he doesn't just want to pardon us. He wants us then to adopt the practices of Jesus so that we're both forgiven and then transformed to live not as citizens of the kingdoms of this world, but of the kingdom of our God and his Christ. Amen. And this started happening in Ephesus, and that's why there was a great disturbance in their culture. It gets amazing, watch this. Verse 24, a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot, say that, a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers related in their trade. They make idols. And look what they said. And he said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see in here, this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large, I love how he says Paul led them astray, large numbers of people in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that the gods made by humans' hands are not gods at all, that stinker. Look at verse 27. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, idol making, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshiped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and they began to shout, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And here we have an unbelievable thing that's happening in the book of Acts. And it happens all over the world where, where, where Christians walk in the pardon and the practices of their King Jesus. 
When the economic practices of believers are transformed through the gospel, you will have impact in your culture. You have real discipleship and transformation when our practices, how we use our time, our treasure, our talent, how we partake of, how we use our money and our resources, when God's grace actually begins to touch those areas of life, there will inevitably be a collision. And my question in Acts, it was idol making that impacted their economy and culture because so many people were becoming Christians. My question is, what industries should be suffering in our culture if followers of the way began to explore greater depths of kingdom life and the power of the Spirit? What industries, what cultural rivers need to dry up or be transformed if you and I don't just receive the pardon of Christ but begin to live the life and lifestyle of Jesus Christ? Can you think of industries that it would be really good news that they ceased to exist in our generation. Cultural rivers, like I said, that need to be dried up because believers no longer live in the way of the world but the way of Jesus. This began to happen in real time with real believers. And Demetrius is like, this is not good for our bottom line. Soon, verse 29, Told you we're going quick. The whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him. <laughs> Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Now they've done a substantial excavation. This theater could seat approximately 25,000 people. So it's a massive crowd that's yelling and frenzied. Paul's like, let me at him. His friends are like, dude, not good. One against 25,000 is not good odds. Turn to your neighbor and say, do the math. But look at this. The assembly, verse 32, tell me if this bears witness to our cultural moment. The assembly was in confusion. Everyone say confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Read the next phrase with me. This is so significant. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. This is the mob mentality. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for them to be silent in order to make a defense before the people, but they realized he was a Jew and they shouted in unison for about two hours Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And you and I are living in a social media, entertainment, 100,000, 24, 7, 365 access to content, to ideologies and agendas. And I want you to know that many get swept up, not just in the archaic 2000 years Ephesus, modern day Turkey. You and I, if we're not aware of God's grace and word can just as easily be swept up into a mob mentality or the agenda and ideologies of man and like what just was testified to in scripture, not even know why we're there. We just know we're angry. Come on, am I talking to anybody? And we've seen this a million times with big tech and media and propaganda that, that, that propagate their truth to a mindless mass of sheep without a shepherd for vis vision and wisdom for life. And so we're just, we're sh that, that phrase strikes me to the heart in Matthew 9. When he saw the crowds, he like, he's like, they're harassed by a billion voices and affections long, like grabbing at their heart, and they're helpless because they don't have covering. Say that with me, harassed and helpless. And in many ways, this crowd is just the magnification of what we experience on a daily basis. The masses being hijacked by ideologies, theories, and agendas of man, and they don't even know how to put a string of logical wisdom or thoughts together because they're just so bought into the swirl and chaos of the mob. In verse 35, we're already almost done with the passage here. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, 
Imagine some 25,000 people. One guy stands up. You know that the city of Ephesus is the garden of the temple, the great Artemis, and of her image, which fell from heaven. Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples or blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what has happened today. In that case, we would not be able to give an account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. After this, he said, I'm sorry, after he said this, he, say it with me, dismissed the assembly. Now, I got, this is where the, the, the talk is gonna turn, okay? Because we gotta draw out what just happened. It cannot be overlooked or mistaken who was it that came to the defense of Paul and the believers. Whose voice was the voice that silenced the voice of the mob? The city clerk. Not a believer, for what we can tell. It, these undisputable facts that Ephesus is the guardian of the temple. It's not that he's a believer, he shares necessarily their common outlook of life. And, and what I wanna underscore, because we're gonna talk about when the way of Christ collides with culture with the remaining time. It is so significant that the city clerk is the one who stands up, defends, and then dismisses and brings order. And I wanna to propose to you this. If Paul and his companions, in their desire to transform culture through the gospel, if he was a hot-headed jerk, always posting, always slandering his secular idolatrous city, if he was always harping about this or that, if he was mean-spirited, grumpy, temper, hothead, and all he did was criticize, complain, and condemn the pluralistic society that he sought to minister the gospel in, I can almost guarantee you the city clerk would not have done the same thing that he did. Which is to say, oh, this is, it gets gonna get spiky. It's spiky to me. Okay, what if the way we engage culture is almost as important as why we engage culture? Paul was so busy cultivating a kingdom community that lived the way of Jesus in the middle of pluralistic, pagan, idolatrous culture that the implication of this story, he didn't burn bridges and roads to be a redemptive, transforming instrument in the hands of God in a culture like Ephesus. The way we engage with culture is as important, if not more so, as why we engage culture. And so the question is, like Paul, I can just see him. He wants to get in the crowd. They're like, don't do it. And then it's the city clerk of all people that dismisses the crowd, calms them down. And the, the mission Paul's able to eventually get to Rome by the end of Acts. The question is, how do we engage our culture today like Paul, like our brothers and sisters who live in super difficult situations and circumstances around the world. Have you ever wrestled with the thought of how do we engage a culture like ours? Raise your hand. And when you've thought of that, who, if you're honest, have felt like it's super impossible, I don't know which way's up or how to go forward. The honest hands are up. And so I just wanna, I wanna briefly talk about sort of some of the core values of our, the culture in which we live. Um, several books just right away that I can just recommend to you. 
My favorite book that I've read um, in the last couple years is Cultural Apologetics by a guy called Paul, Paul Gould, G-O-U-L-D. Um, Gordon T. Smith has written several amazing books. One of them is Lessons from Babylon, Leadership in a Secular Culture. He's an amazing theologian, pastor, and there's, there's so many other books. But just so you know, I'm pulling from, I'm, I'm synthesizing books to help give us language to make sense of our culture. How many wanna make sense of it? We've gotta make sense of it so we know how to move forward in the grace of God. So how does our culture perceive the world? What is the lens through which your friends, you don't even have to ask them. This is how intrinsic our cultural values are ingrained in us. In a word, we are disenchanted. Everyone say disenchanted. As a culture, we are under the spell of materialism. If you agree, say amen. The view of the Bible is that the world is sacred and beautiful with God's grace on display on every angle and at every turn. But our culture treats the world as ordinary, familiar, and mundane. All that is real is that which can be quantified or qualified or measured. And because we live in a disenchanted, again, borrowing from the infamous and the, the, the seminal work of Charles Taylor and, the secular, and his uh, insights into the secular age, human beings, therefore, if we live disenchanted in a wholly materialistic worldview, human beings will inevitably, because we're worshipers by nature, we will give our affection and allegiance to idols of our heart that will never fully satisfy the attempt that God has put in every human heart for significance, purpose, identity, and meaning. Only a God who is transcendent and who created us can meet that need in the human heart. So the, the, the overarching narrative of our culture is one of disenchantment. We're under the spell of materialism. How does our culture think? What drives our thoughts? Again, from, from Paul Gold, we are, in a word, sensate. And you'll get what that word means in a second. We're fixated on the physical, the sensory, and the material. Our entire education systems train us to fix our minds upon the material world, be fixated on the here and the now with very little thought on the then and the there. And so if our world is closed off, again, the, the agendas, it's so obvious. Just open a newspaper, turn on the news. Disenchanted, there's no room for God. And if that's the case, then how we think is just through our senses. What we can touch, taste, feel. And as a result, that's how we see and that's how we think. How do we live? In a word, again from Paul Gold, we are hedonistic. We move from one desire to the next, filling ourselves with bite-sized pleasures that give us immediate payoff, but end up enslaving us in the end. Can I get an amen? So the world is closed. This is how culture views the world. We're disenchanted. Push God out of the conversation, out of our thoughts, out of our thinking. We're left with a materialistic worldview. Then all that is real is what we can taste, touch, sense, and feel. There's no sense of the divine interacting or intersecting with humanity. And as a result, if this is all that there is, then the way we live is just from one pleasure to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. Am I describing anyone's former or current way of life who needs the gospel? And so these worldviews have slowly and surely, they've been around forever, but in our right now, 2022, this is how the people around us, I was talking to a friend who was doing some uh, engaging students at Cal Poly two weeks ago. And he said, you know, he's talking to these 19, 20 year olds um, who just, Cal Poly is amazing. My wife and I just hiked Madonna Mountain. I love Cal Poly, I love the whole area, it's beautiful. But just even talking to them, these young ones, about any, even a felt need for God. There's, there's not, for, for many of us, if you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, if you're in here, there was this general consensus of like a God consciousness not so long ago. Amen? Say amen. But, but we, we've been so programmed in our generation, again, of that disenchantment, the imminent frame, 
sensei, all that there is, what we can, the, the five senses, science is king and, 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 and king and key. And then all we're left with then is just everyone do what they want, be what they want, because that's all that life really is. There's no divine meaning. This is where we live. I'm sorry to give you the good news. This is where we live. We don't get to pick it. We are born at such a time as this. And if you have Jesus in you, this, we, we, we don't have the right, we don't have the, the free pass to say, well, I don't really care about culture. I'm good, I'm going to heaven someday. That's not how the gospel works. He changes your heart and he wants to give you his heart for a world that is as lost as it was when Jesus came. It's just the rules are different. But how many know just because the rules and the outlook of culture can change, the gospel still has power to transform people. People and families and, and institutions. And so we live in a secular culture. And here's, here's, here's just, I'm gonna just give you some, this is, you know, this is a little more teaching, but I've been sitting on this stuff for like for so many years and today I'm like, I'm, I'm gonna say it. So just get over it. A secular culture is pluralist, quote unquote, and tolerant of all visions of life, so it claims. It rejects all religious claims and builds its common aims for the good of all citizens based on scientific facts. How many times have you heard, and listen, I am not anti-science, so don't even at me, okay? I love that God has given the human mind unbelievable capacity to invent, to explore means and medians that add to the value of life. Everyone say, Chatty's not anti-science, so nice, okay? Love God, I love smart people. But how many have heard this language like it's, a creed for a religion, trust the science. It's like the new creedal confession. Ah! So the common aims for the scientific facts and now theories aimed at bringing about so, you know, socially engineered justice. Again, this is, the, this is the air we breathe. Scientific facts, social justice, According to what and according to who? Hello, that's the issue. But here's what's unbelievable about what I just described as our secular culture. Secularism seeks to kick God out of the public sphere in the name of religious neutrality. But this statement is a religious view. I'm not, I'm not trying to get like my amen corner, but I'm just, this is heavy teaching, but I want you to understand the get religion out of the public sphere is a religious confession that there is no God, God is science, all that can be trusted is what we can quantify, taste, touch, and measure, and then to fix that which ails humanity is now we are the judge, we are the jury, and we are the prosecutor according to our sense of right and wrong. Again, with no reverence, for God or reference to God. This is the secular culture that we live and breathe in. And Michael Goheen, the great missiologist, says the secular society is not a neutral area that we can project the Christian message into. It's already occupied, say it with me, by other gods. And we have a battle on our hands. Why? Because we're dealing with principalities and powers. Let me give you an example. I'm humbly confessing this, um, my example. My wife and I have the stinking hardest time to find a show that is not dripping and oozing with ideologies and agenda. Can anyone else raise their hand so I don't feel alone? I'm like, we're watching a Netflix show or an Amazon Prime show because we just, we wanna chill. We've been working all day. Our kids are finally to sleep. We just wanna unwind and hang out. We get. 15 minutes into an episode, I'm like, oh, there's that agenda, Ugh, next show. Am I describing anyone else on the planet? That's because the secular narrative is not neutral space. It's couched and it's backed by principalities and powers that are as old as the betrayal of Jesus and his crucifixion, that Psalm chapter two, the nations that rage against God, and the reason I'm, I'm telling you, it's not just, oh, I hate it because that show had this agenda, this ideology, this agenda. It's that there's, I, in our bedroom, we're actually coming against ideologies and agenda that are inspired from the enemy. And you think, Chad, you're intense. I am intense, so you got me. 
But that's what's actually happening when we're having a hard time finding a show. It's not like, oh, you know, it's not like media and entertainment and politics and policies are like, we're cool with you thinking how you want to think and live how you want to live. No. And this is what many of us, we don't know what to do with what I'm describing. Hopefully I'm helping every ordinary person in this room like me. I face this stuff almost weekly when we have to change a show because we're just so exhausted being uh, onslaughted by our own stinking choice at the price of $14.99 a month. We're paying for it. Do you understand how silly? And then we wonder why is our life exactly like the world? I'm confessing myself. I'm not casting stones. It's John 8. You without sin cast. I don't have, I'm, this is my life. Ask my wife. Well, that show, that was cool. Like, they let us like, just enjoy good storytelling and acting for episode one. By episode two, boom. No one else. Okay, I hope I'm connecting here. I'm just trying to be honest. Just say amen. Obviously, the, uh, the, uh, the, Chad, did you know that there is such a thing as discipline and self-control? You don't need to, amen. Try to say, amen. I know, I know, I know that. The secular society is not neutral. The claim, listen to this, I, this is so significant. Listen to this phrase. The claim of tolerance and neutrality are false claims. They're lies. Just watch the news media or entertainment or actors or actresses or any cultural savant-garde or any culture-shaping institutions. They will jump from one moral topic to the next moral topic to the next moral topic, but they'll base it on their own prerogative and sense of judgment. And there's no solid foundation in public opinion if there is not a foundation that transcends what I see, what I feel, and what I think. That's why it's just, it's just insanity. And you just, I've often, I'm a, I'm a decently thoughtful person that even on a regular basis, I'm just like, what's happening? Has anyone ever done the beside me? <laughs> so how do we move forward? I'm going to have to turn the page here. We're just going to, I probably am going to get through my fifth page. I got eight, but I love you because we can have this talk. I wanna just define two terms because they matter for what I'm gonna say at the end here. Secularism, everyone say secularism, is this, this stream of thought, this outlook that religion does not belong in the public sphere, just keep it private. So everyone say that. Get it out of the public, keep it private. Amen? Secularity, and they are different, because that's what I'm gonna talk about, is secularity. And this is, listen, if we're honest, this is where we live. You didn't have a word for it, probably, but that's what it's called. Where religion no longer has a privileged voice in society. So we live in a generation where not only is it keep your faith to yourself, secularism, amen? You can believe like you want, but in here, our gods are We live in, like I said, it's disenchanted so that there is no God. All that there is is material. And so then you're just left with building a worldview with um, broken material without reverence to or reference to God. And not only does, does religion not belong according to secularism, it doesn't belong in the public sphere. Just keep it private. Now we live in a day where, oh my goodness, and those who are older in this room can re remember like where being a believer may have got you ahead at work. And am I talking to anybody? We got some older saints in the house. Now religion no longer has a privileged voice in our society. I was talking to a friend today and I'm not, listen, we're gonna get through all the hot topics probably in some series after Easter um, about um, God and sexuality and just the, the mess of our culture right now and, and confusion around those things. But my friend, when I was talking to my pastor friend today and he's describing kiddos who are, who are this is legitimate story. This is not a sound bite from a false news report. Not that there's not real, I don't know. Where do you find real news? Tell me, after the service. <laughs> he's saying, Chad, we live in a day where it, it, it's, there's like, 
Those who used to be bullied because of their lifestyle, their choices, their orientation, and the like, are now the bullies for those who do not accept the predominant worldview of God and sexuality. Um, and that, listen to me, that's happened relatively quickly. I mean, generations, I mean, fast. Am I at least making sense? I know this is a little, I'm teaching a little different today, but like I said, this has been year, I've been sitting on this stuff for years and finally I'm like, now is the time. Ephesus, Acts 19, the collision of Christ and culture, this is the time to at least start the conversation. By no way are we gonna even get close to finishing. So in light of secularism and secularity, keep it public, I'm sorry, keep it private, and it's no longer privileged voice, it's just one of thousands of other voices in our society that is sort of disdained as bigoted and backwood and yesteryear. What is our response? <sighs> How then shall we live? Gordon T. Smith with the wind. With the wind. I'm, this is a full-on ripoff. He presents four responses for how believers can live in the midst of Babylon. Secularism and secularity. Keep it private and it's no longer privileged. Number one, you'll see some of these are terrible options, but they're options. Number one, as we just go along to get along, we accept the secular narrative. You're right, faith should be private and not public. And so who we are on Sunday in no way represents who we are Monday through Saturday. How many think option one's good? But it's an option, I'm just saying. It's what so many have done, just go along to get along. It's not worth the fight, I'm just like, it's cool man, you do you, I'll do me. Praise God, that wasn't God's perspective towards us when he sent his son. Number two. This one has some appeal to an introvert like me. The monastic retreat or disengagement. Culture's so jacked up, it's beyond saving. Old school folks might say, to hell in a handbasket. So let's just build a basket. I don't know what we do over here. And so this, put it back on the screen for me, number two. This is that decline is inevitable. Peace out. I'm just going to form a different community, like a Jesus community. This has some truth. We do need to come out and to disengage so that we can re-engage through a different spirit and a different idea, a different way. But in the end, it's, it's, uh, it's not the way of Jesus to retreat. Come on, somebody. Sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. I'm not praying you take them out of the world, I want you to take the world out of them so when I send them back into the world, they have something redemptive to contribute. Amen. I don't know if you got that. Number three, we all know this one, especially uh, in light of 60s and the 70s, 80s and 90s and the like. Number three, option three is the culture war. This is couched in the belief that society was once Christian and needs to be restored through the courts, through education, through institutions and legislator policies and politics. There's definitely some truth in this one that we should insist that society is best served not when religion is kept out of the public sphere, but when it is respectfully lived and expressed in a way that honors others and their differences of opinions. Again, this is super hard for us. We can't enforce beliefs or insist that others conform, but we shouldn't deny the presence of deeply held religious convictions. So option three has all sorts of, it's called the culture war. How do we move in our culture? Number four, the fourth option, redemptive engagement through faithful presence. We accept the reality, not because we, listen, how many know there's a difference between accepting and approving? Help me say amen, there's a difference. We accept the reality of the three things I described, disenchanted, sensei, and hedonistic. That is the, okay, you don't get, I don't get, I don't, I don't get to go poof, 
different cultural outlook. That's where we live. So we accept the reality, but we refuse to be disempowered or discouraged. Instead, we engage culture in a way that is faithful to the gospel and transformative through his power. Living as a redemptive person who engages within the reality of our culture calls for two things, humility, uh, say it, humility, and charity or grace. We wanna live within society rather than always at war with society. This is again, Gordon T. Smith. Chad did not write this. I'm giving you summaries of what homeboy wrote. Dr. Gordon T. Smith, not a homeboy. Dr. Gordon T. Smith. Leslie Nibigan, the great missiologist said, this is the church's call to be, be a hermeneutic or an explanation of the gospel we proclaim. Chad, which one are you? Number one, number two, number three, or number four? Can I answer, just so you don't have to guess? I am a mixture of number three and number four. We are in a war. Amen? The Bible, I just quoted it on the way up. My wife and I, Madonna Mountain took way longer than I remembered when I hiked it as a college age pastor. It's like an hour and 45 minutes, beautiful hike, but as I was hiking, I was just quoting Ephesians 6. And Ephesians 6 says, therefore be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and powers in the heavenly. Again, amen. So we are in a war, but I'm different from number three in the sense that our primary enemy are people. And this is where we've not necessarily been a great witness. We've been angry by ideologies and agendas, but we've walked in the same spirit as the spirit of the age. And so do I, so I'm a blend of number three. We are in a war, but it's primarily a clash between kingdoms, which are then empowered through principalities and powers and forces that possess and occupy people, amen? But the battle's not against flesh and blood or Paul and Christ would not have told us that it wasn't. And I'm a blend of number three and four. We are absolutely in a battle. We're in a spiritual battle that has physical, psychological, political, and personal implications. So I'm not one of those who just says, oh man, it's all just a spiritual battle. I love that it's, I, I pray we are in contending. We're believing for the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven. We want God to rescue, to, to, to adopt the orphans, to raise up a generation of Davids and Daniels and Samuels who know the voice of God, who live out of a different narrative and framework for life formed and fashioned by the gospel of King Jesus. But it is not just a spiritual battle. It has physical, psychological, political, and personal fallout. And I tell you what, I don't know what it's gotten into me. Oh man, Ugh. I'm a combination of three and four, but I've, 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 I'm right in the middle of three and four. I think I've been a little more four in previous years. Something about my kids getting old enough. I got four children. I was talking to a friend who has pastors in New Zealand and Australia who do not live in a democracy like we do. It's kind of spurred me on a little bit. He's talking to pastors that, hey, beyond 10, beyond 100, and if someone has all these rules and mandates and legislations in other parts, hello, we're seeing our friends to the North Canada and the trucks. I've swung a little bit more where because I'm much more of sort of a reflective prayer, it's a spiritual thing, man, it's a battle. But I want you to know it is a good and noble thing and a privilege in a nation like ours to agree that yes, it is a spiritual thing, but this spiritual battle has physical, psychological, political, and personal implications. And so there's a groundswell of those who are like, vote, organize, protest, participate in the public polit political sphere in the way of Jesus. And I wanna say as your friend, your brother, and if you view me as a spiritual leader in your life, that that passion of yours is good and it can be godly and it can be noble, so way to go. I wanna cheer you up and I wanna cheer you on. 
Jesus said this in Matthew 18, and then I'm gonna land the plane, I've got to. Jesus said this, who's the greatest in the kingdom? He called the children to him and placed the child among them, and he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. The principle is the kingdom belongs to children. Jesus cares about the weak, the invisible, the vulnerable, the child, those who have no social status and no social standing. Those are the ones Jesus wants to include in his kingdom. And we all said amen, because that's all of us. We weren't wise or noble or influential, but Jesus just flung open the doors and said, my kingdom is for the likes of you. But let me say this without mincing any words or any confusion. It goes on to say in Matthew 18, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, this is the words of Jesus Christ, it would be better for them to have a large millstone around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. And I want to just name this, and then I want to help give us language and teach the biblical vision of God over the next months and quarters of our time together. It is not a stretch to say, and I know we have many teachers in here and other culture involved in different streams of culture, there is an all-out war for the hearts, minds, lives, and bodies of the next generation. Just sit on that, I'm, I'm not being fancy. I wanna name that, there is, a, there is not a neutral agenda that's lobbed at my children. And I feel this. I feel it in my bones as a dad. And many times when I sit in that, I can go to despair to think, what is the hope? It's at every turn, it's at every corner, it's at every, even like Netflix kids show, there's something and I'm like, and I wanna say, it's okay to be more than not okay with the all out assault against the hearts, minds, lives, and bodies of our children and our children's children. If Jesus said it would be better for a millstone to be hung around the neck of those who cause little ones to stumble, I want you to know it is not okay. And I want to humbly say for those who sense the spirit of God, I wanna encourage your passion to promote in a democracy like ours, I'm not gonna tell you how, but should the spirit lead you to rise up and to engage in the realm of politics, policy, media, entertainment, any of these realms, that there is an agenda lobbed against our kiddos and we do not have to be okay with it. Amen. Chad, we already know that. Well, I just wanted to say it. Jesus is not okay with any ideology or agenda that's lobbed against young, defenseless, fatherless, innocent kids to be shaped or formed, not in the image of God, but in the image of the cultural elites of our generation. This is not the way of Christ. And we see this has happened so fast. In the 60s, it was the sexual revolution, remove sex from the confines of marriage, free love, bro. And then, because sex is now just whatever I feel like, you had the, the dawn of a, women, a woman's choice. If sex is now just a recreational activity, that we remove, we, ha we must have the choice to remove any and all unwanted consequences from our sexual practices. Free sex, I can do whatever I want. I'm just, this is the very fast, we're gonna, this could be sermon series. I'm just giving you a last bit, tidbit here to think on. So the sexual revolution of the 60s, a woman's choice, sex is now just recreational to so remove all choices of unwanted consequences. And then you have the, the, the gay agenda, not just to tolerate, but to accept, approve, applaud, and now the mainstream position. And then, we just saw this in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, marriage is no longer between man and a woman. And now, the cry that what is happening in the air we breathe is the transgender moment. You get to choose what gender you want to identify 
ass. I'm just doing that not to put a heavy blanket, just to give us language to realize we've come a long way in 60 years. Anyone living through the 60s that you're alive now and everything I just said, I'm not being mean-spirited in the least bit. Just giving simple language to realize, oh my goodness, things have picked up pretty fast. And I want you to say this with historical data that I can give you later and books and stuff. All of these agendas have been carefully curated, intentionally, strategically, and incrementally flowed from the culture-creating rivers of entertainment, advertising, market, social media, news, politics, and policies. None of those six things that I just gave such a terrible, brief introduction of, those six agendas, all of them had money behind them, ideas, ideologies. They had strategy and structures, people and places to transmit this counter everything to God and his kingdom, his glorious gospel, the image of God in every person, the sanctity and beauty of life and the potential of humanity and the grace of God. All of these agendas didn't just happen. They were carefully curated. And I want, you to, I want you to know this. I'm not putting some false thing on you because everyone's got their cross and everyone's got their call, amen? But I want to encourage church, these are difficult, dark days, but they're incredible days to redemptively engage with the glory of the gospel of Jesus informing and infusing our lives so that we could participate in God's kingdom and God cares about the next generation. <laughs> Come on, someone else besides Raphael say amen. He cares about their little minds, their little hearts, their little bodies, their little souls. He cares about families and people and institutions. And I want you to know, I want to encourage you. You don't have to be fear driven. You don't have to fear, well, if I engage redemptively, Listen, all we think is that if we, we have to play by the same rules as the world. So tribal, us versus them, sarcastic, slanderous, demonic. And I want you to know, the way we engage is as important that we engage. And this has been forgotten by many of us. If we're honest, can we just be honest? Say amen. amen. Because our righteous zeal was, was righteously rooted, but it was executed for many of us in a wrong spirit. And I want you to know, we can repent and go at it again. Not everyone needs to, I'm not putting that on everybody. But the most, here's what I, last phrase, the most powerful force behind our public participation is that we embody the message we so passionately vocalize. Amen. Sit on that, I'm done. I leave it there, leave it there. This is why before there was a disturbance culturally, for two and a half years, the Apostle Paul is talking about the kingdom of God so that their lives were formed for a different kingdom so that they can engage their culture, not from the kingdom of the ruler of the air, but from the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It was something that he wanted to transform them so they could be transformative agents in their world. So in response and in conclusion, it is not enough to be defensive against culture. It is not enough to just strive to be pure from culture on our own little islands. And it is not enough to just try to be relevant too and we just lose all of our biblical distinctives. There is another way called the way of Jesus. And so here's just some questions as we respond. Again, this is just the beginning talk. But has the Lord given anyone in this room even a little bit of hope or, or just language to name the moment that we live in? So as we respond, is there a gap? Just ask yourself this at the very, very end, Justin. I love you. Thanks for keeping up with me. Is there a gap between my, your personal faith and our public life? Just stop. Just think. God, is my personal faith transforming my public life? 
How many would just say, Chatty, I, I want to grow in this because there probably is a little bit of a gap besides me. These are just response questions. Number two, is there any discernible difference for how I allocate my time, treasure, and talent as a follower of the way than those who do not claim to follow Jesus? Don't feel guilty, just ask the question, is there any discernible difference with the allocation of my time, treasure, my talent, my resources, my energy, my effort, as a follower of the way than those who don't claim to follow Jesus? Oh man, this third one gets me, I wrote, have I given up hope and adopted a nihilistic, fatalistic attitude towards the world and my partnership with Jesus and his mission to restore, reconcile, and redeem all things through the gospel? Am I just discouraged? Anyone ever been there? I just don't have hope, it's too hard. Just hurry up, come back, Jesus, or get me out of here, Jesus. Come on. And if we're honest, our soul is sick because hope seems so dismal and dark. Number four, am I a part of a counterformational community called the church <laughs> where I'm learning to embody the truth of the gospel so that when I engage with culture, it's filled with spirit power and life? Number five, have I engaged with the chaos of culture in the same spirit as the world or in a constructive, creative, prophetic spirit of Christ? Just ask, Lord, search me and know me. And then lastly, is there a specific assignment that the Lord has for me or for us in this time to be a part of a redemptive alternative that is currently being offered in our region, in our world. Just spend 30 seconds. All of these are online if you scan the QR. My whole eight page notes, you can scrutinize it, tear it apart, call me, email me, meet with me. I'd, I'd love any or all of it. But just come before the Lord. Can we just come before the Lord as we think about the collision of Christ and culture and how we're meant to live and interact with our world today as ambassadors of reconciliation and instruments of righteousness, as sons and daughters of God, followers of the way of Jesus. And if you particularly feel an assignment from the Lord that you want God's grace to empower you, you acknowledge there's a war, you don't know really who the enemy is or how to fight, but there's something in your heart that's like, I wanna be a part of what God's doing in our generation, in this hour. Can you just stand in, 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 a, in a simple act of, Lord, I wanna be an instrument, I wanna be a vessel, I wanna be a channel through which your healing love can flow in our cultural moment. I don't have all the answers. I certainly don't have all the resources. I don't have all the even questions or answers, but I wanna participate in this generation for the glory of God and for the sake of his world. Can you just put your hand on your heart and just say, Holy Spirit, fill me, transform me from the inside out. I want to live as a follower, not of a theory, not just of confessions or claims. I want to live the way of Jesus. Holy Spirit, fill and transform every part in me. I know it's a lifelong journey, but I wanna sign up again today. And then more than anything, Father, place hope. Come on, say it. Place hope deep inside me because Christ is alive. He's moving. He's releasing plans and purposes and giving his power to his sons and daughters to participate with him, with the gospel for such a time as this.
And let me just pray for you now. Lord, I ask for my friends. I ask that you would break off the spirit of despair, powerlessness, and discouragement. God, I simply barely, barely named some of the complexities. We could talk for a, a year and more. But Lord, as we've tried to name or paint a picture for our time, I'm asking God that the vision of the gospel would now transcend and overtake with hope all that we've heard and all that we've seen very briefly today. Would you empower us to step into the flow of your grace for the sake of your name? In Jesus' mighty name, we all said amen and amen. I love you guys so much. If you need, yeah, thank you. If you need prayer, come on up. Come on up. If not, we're gonna keep this conversation going on how to grow as a counterformation community. I love you guys so much.